Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas from Confluence Investment Management. Our purpose is to focus on major geopolitical and economic trends and their investment implications. Should we be thinking differently about inflation as we consider investment decisions? Is there something we're missing? A yes answer to either question might be valuable because misperceptions can often hide investment opportunities. Confluence Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady joins us today to shed some light on inflation. Bill, in your experience, are we investors confused about how to view inflation? Well, yeah, I think so. First off, it's important to note that innumeracy is widespread in humans. Basic arithmetic can be a problem. Probability and statistics can even be a greater mystery. The primary confusion with inflation is that this term measures the rate of change in a price index. Thus, a small positive inflation reading still reflects overall higher price levels. So what happens naturally when inflation is perceived to be rising or volatile is that we are forced to make assumptions about the path of future price increases when we buy things and when we invest. Do you think, as we consider investment decisions, it might be wise to focus less on actual price increases that have occurred or will occur, and more on the possibility of price volatility in the future. Well, for investors, it, it really boils down to a couple of issues. First, our investments to be worthwhile must outpace the general rise in price levels. Second, inflation volatility determines the difficulty in making price forecasts. If inflation volatility is elevated, we have to account for a wider range of potential outcomes. That should lead investors to demand higher interest rates and lower multiples. If volatility is dampened, the opposite occurs. Since the variation in prices is less, investors feel more confident of what inflation will look like in the future. Bill, you've written a recent paper outlining how inflation behaved during four major economic periods in the United States. A quick comparison can open our eyes to some important characteristics of inflation, so I thought we could briefly consider each period, beginning with the gold standard, which began in 1871 and lasted through World War II. What stands out about this period, inflation-wise? The first is that on average, prices rose very slowly. Inflation through this period was quite low on average. But the other important factor is inflation volatility was extraordinarily wide. This is because the money supply was tied to the supply of gold. Because the money supply was essentially dependent on mining activity, gold supplies tended to increase in a lumpy fashion. In other words, when a mine was discovered and exploited, the money supply jumped and that tended to trigger inflation. Complicating matters further was for much of this period, the U.S. was in the heart of its industrial revolution. As production rapidly increased, so did the supply of goods. If the money supply is fixed, the normal outcome to a rising supply of goods was falling price levels. So while average inflation was low, there were periods of both inflation and deflation and a wide variation in prices. The next period we're talking about is Bretton Woods. You call this a quasi-gold standard. What changed? 
Well, the world essentially went on a dollar standard, but there was a fixed value of dollars then to gold. The idea was that the dollar-gold relationship would act as an anchor to the world money supply. This link would require the U.S. to maintain a certain degree of policy austerity to maintain the link. During this period, exchange rates were fixed and could only be adjusted by announced changes in valuation. In other words, you could have discrete episodes of revaluation and devaluation. In practice, two factors emerged. First, most of the time the free world was comfortable with holding dollars as the reserve asset. It's important to remember that the communist nations didn't participate in Bretton Woods. To ensure an ample level of dollars in the world, the U.S. found it had to run current account deficits. At the same time, the more dollars that existed in the world, the less valuable they became. This problem was described as the Triffin Dilemma, named after a Belgian economist. The need to supply dollars required a trade deficit, but the longer the trade deficit existed, confidence in the dollar would tend to erode. Another factor that emerged was the Britain wood system restricted capital flows. All the participants restricted inflows and outflows of foreign investment. Thus, if imbalances developed, financial market participants couldn't force a resolution. Let's say, for example, a currency appeared to be overvalued. In the absence of capital controls, traders would simply short the currency, expecting it to eventually depreciate. To some extent, this activity was one of the features of the Asian financial crisis in the late 1990s. Many Asian nations had fixed exchange rates, which proved unsustainable. This is because in the 1990s, capital markets were mostly unencumbered. That was not the case in Bretton Woods. Eventually, the evolution of the eurodollar market undermined capital controls. The offshore dollar market meant that U.S. policymakers had to deal with an unregulated lending market that used dollars. As capital controls became undermined, it was harder to maintain the system. In the late 1960s, the French started to demand gold for their dollars. If the U.S. was going to maintain the Bretton Woods system, it was going to require policy austerity, and the U.S. didn't want to implement it. So, during this period, inflation turned out to be higher than in the gold standard years, but inflation volatility was actually quite a bit lower. Then comes our next economic period when President Nixon ended the gold standard in the early 1970s. And you call this period the lost years. How did inflation behave during this time period and why? Well, inflation itself accelerated, but its volatility actually declined. Essentially, Nixon ended the Bretton Woods arrangement because he didn't want austerity. He believed that if he maintained Bretton Woods, U.S. policymakers would need to raise rates and tighten fiscal policy to depress the economy. By doing this, the flow of gold would have reversed to the United States at the cost of a recession. This policy mix would have reduced Nixon's re-election odds, so to free policy from the constraints of the gold standard, he ended it. Without the anchor to gold, coupled with persistent easy policy, inflation rose each business cycle. The overall narrative emerged that policymakers didn't implement austerity long enough or tight enough to curtail inflation. We think this narrative is only partly true. The U.S. economy was heavily regulated in this period. Deregulation was required to bring down inflation, but it is true that monetary policy tended to swing from one extreme to the other. Finally, there is the current period, which you call fiat credibility. Basically, the Fed has been willing to risk recession by raising interest rates to cut inflation. How did this play out? 
Well, for much of human history, money was tied to a metallic standard. This standard enforced some degree of scarcity for money. The fear was that governments would be tempted to expand the money supply to buy things without taxing citizens to acquire it. When Nixon entered the gold standard, the lost years were really about establishing a new standard for currencies. Internationally, the world moved from a dollar-gold standard of the Bretton Woods system to a dollar-treasury in terms of the reserve currency and the reserve asset. But in the lost year period, the world had not adjusted yet. To give this arrangement credibility, policymakers established the structure of central bank independence coupled with a definitive inflation target. And for the most part, it worked. Although widespread deregulation and globalization did much of the heavy lifting to keep inflation at bay, faith in money was restored by these measures. Bill, when comparing these four periods, what are the key takeaways? Well, first, a full-blown gold standard puts the burden of adjustment on labor. As voting rights broadened and as mass industrialization wars required mass mobilization of soldiers, labor was no longer willing to bear the cost and had the voting power to avoid it. Second, it's hard to maintain capital controls. Although Nixon is blamed for ending the gold standard, in reality, the eurodollar market would have eventually led to the end of Bretton Woods on its own. And third, central bank and currency credibility rest on occasional bouts of austerity. Now, you point out that in this current period, the Fed has two pillars in its monetary policy. First, a defined inflation target, and second, bank independence. Focusing on that defined inflation target, I wonder if this is changing. Is there anything magical about the Fed's 2% inflation target? Actually, not really. The 2% target was established by the first central bank to formally establish an inflation target, which was the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. Other central banks tended to adopt it. But it should be noted that the fact that central banks have enacted negative nominal policy rates or balance sheet expansion would suggest the target was probably too low. So a 3% target might work fine, as long as the public or investors are convinced that inflation might be stabilized at that level. Well, in theory, yes. But what isn't known is if the 2% target has a psychological value that gives investors confidence in the currency. Or the level may not matter as much as the establishment of the target itself. In other words, changing it alone might undermine its value. Once a target can change, it will be difficult to argue that we really mean it this time. Bill, what do you think the chances are that we might achieve price stability in the near future, even if prices remain at a higher level than they were a year or two ago? Well, in the near term, I think it's fairly high because a recession will likely bring down inflation. But what I worry about is in the longer term. Changes to supply relationships and deglobalization will lead to a steeper aggregate supply curve and likely increase inflation volatility. Do you think the Fed will stick to its 2% target, even if adherence to that target leads to more frequent and deeper recessions and higher price volatility? No. I think at some point the target will be raised. The issue is the path to that decision. We may have to suffer through a deep recession or a fiscal crisis before the FOMC moves to a higher target. Bill, how should we tailor our investment strategies to align with the long-term probability of greater price volatility? 
While higher inflation volatility means greater duration risk, thus investors should shorten target durations in fixed income holdings and prefer value stocks over growth stocks. In general, growth stocks are long-duration assets. We mentioned earlier that current Fed monetary policy stands on two pillars. The one we didn't discuss is Federal Reserve Bank independence. Is the Fed's independence under any threat? Well, it it certainly could be. Wars tend to force governments to end central bank independence. If the government's debt service becomes excessive, the Treasury might require the Fed to engage in yield curve control. We've discussed four major monetary periods. Do you see another one emerging, a period where the dollar declines and inflation volatility remains high? Well, it's certainly possible. At a minimum, we have just gone through a nearly four-decade period of relative price stability. Higher and more volatile inflation could undermine the dollar compared to other currencies. It, It certainly did during the 1970s. Paul Volcker is credited with extinguishing inflation expectations. I think he's given too much credit. But the one thing he should be given credit for is restoring faith in the dollar. Bill, we began by discussing investor confusion about inflation. One reason we're confused, I think, is because of the sheer number of inflation measures. We tend to consolidate and consider only the consumer price index. What's your advice? You know, in a sense, each of us has his or her own inflation index based upon our personal purchasing habits. Families with teenagers tend to buy lots of food, and thus they're very sensitive to food costs. Older people consume more health care and are more sensitive to medical costs. The various price indexes are really a quest to establish the underlying trend in prices. The Fed's preferred measure, the personal consumption price deflator, is a good one because it adjusts to changes in spending. The real issue for policymakers is that when inflation is seen as a problem, it leads households and firms to change their purchasing behavior and response. Unfortunately, that's a psychological issue that no single index can really fully capture. Thank you, Bill. Today's discussion is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. You can find us on Twitter at ConfluenceIM. Thank you.